Welcome to your High Vibration Life podcast with Robin Openshaw, also known online as the Green Smoothie Girl. When you're living your high vibration life, you're healthier in every way. You're more productive, creative, peaceful, and loving. Your high vibration life is calling. And now your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, Robin Openshaw here. Welcome back to Your High Vibration Life. This is episode 38. And you know, we are in our third season now, and it's kind of exciting to be bringing you back someone who I've already interviewed. I interviewed Chris Wark in episode 21. It was epic. I hope you did not miss that. If so, the nice thing is about podcasts, you can go listen to it anytime you want. But Chris Wark told us in episode 21, a more detailed story of his being diagnosed with cancer and beating cancer without chemotherapy or radiation. I did this interview that you're about to hear parts of for our detoxers. In spring of 2017, we had 2,000 people join us for the Green Smoothie Girl 26-Day Detox. And as a special bonus for all of our detoxers, I put together this interview with Chris. I think it's very, very special, and I wanted to share part of it with you. It is Chris's thoughts on beating cancer, what he wishes that you knew about how to avoid cancer in the first place. He's funny. He's charming. He has a vast knowledge of the data out there, the published research on what specifically, not just in diet, but in everything lifestyle related, what helps you stay well and what helps you get well. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw, and I'm really excited to introduce you to someone who I think the world of, and you're going to learn a lot on this call, so stick with us because I'm asking my good friend, I think of him as a little brother, we're on a very similar path, we are both students of how to be well, as well as cancer and alternative roads for people diagnosed with cancer or people who have a lot of it in their family and like to avoid it, which is what we're talking about today. I'm introducing you to Chris Wark. And if you follow my podcast, Your High Vibration Life, you may have heard the extended version of his story in episode 21. So if this episode fascinates you, make sure you go back and hear the expanded version in episode 21. What we're focusing on today is a little bit different, but first of all, welcome Chris Wark. Hi, Robin. Great to uh, be with you. You've been all over the place doing such exciting things with our celebrity friends, Mike Adams and Sayerji and, and Chris. Chris's uh, his whole career is just exploding right now. Everybody wants to talk to him because he inside his brain is a massive encyclopedia of knowledge about how to avoid cancer and how to heal from cancer that does not involve chemo, radiation, or surgery, which is the three, the the three prongs of the modern oncology industry. So, Chris, I'm so glad to have you back. I want you to tell us. Let's just assume everybody hasn't heard your story, but we're going to tell the nutshell version of what is really remarkable, beautiful story. Tell us about being di- diagnosed with cancer. What age you were? Whether you're prepared to take this path you're taking? Just tell it to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, I was diagnosed when I was 26 with stage three colon cancer. And uh, of course it was a big shock. And um, like any cancer patient, um, didn't expect it, didn't see it coming. I was having some abdominal pain for for many months and I thought it was an ulcer and turns out it was a tumor in my large intestine. And um, I was diagnosed with a colonoscopy. They took a biopsy and they, you know, sent it to to the lab and said, hey, and you got colon cancer. And the next thing I knew, they were basically booking me for surgery uh, just they wanted me in surgery just within a few days. And that's very typical of the cancer industry. As soon as you get a, get a diagnosis, they're trying to get you into treatment before you haven't even have a chance to get a second opinion, right? You don't even have a chance to think about your life or what's happening to you or why you may be sick or all the factors that are involved. Uh, it's just, oh, you know, we're so sorry. It's, you know, it's just bad luck and we better get you into treatment right away. So I um, was, you know, I, I postponed the surgery about a week because it was a couple days before Christmas and I just didn't want to be in the hospital on Christmas. I think that's cancer is depressing enough. Can I at least not spend Christmas in the hospital? <laughs> so had surgery on December 30th and they took out a third of my large intestine, took out this tumor and some lymph nodes that were obviously, uh, that had, that cancer had obviously spread to. And when I woke up, they said, you know, 
it's worse than we thought. You're stage 3C, and you know that's one click away from stage 4. And uh, you're going to need 9 to 12 months of chemotherapy. So all that happened so fast, and I was in the hospital you know, on heavy pain medication because they, I mean, they cut through all my abdominal muscles and you know, cut, cut out some of my intestines and stitched them back together. And, you know, the part of the story that I love to tell so much is the very first meal that they served me in the hospital was a sloppy joe. And it's like the worst, it's the best example of the worst food you can eat, right? It's so bad that they don't even serve sloppy joes in restaurants. Like, T- nobody likes them, right? But they they gave it to me to eat as a cancer patient as, as the first meal after they cut me open, took out some of my intestines and sewed me back together. So that was a bit of a red flag uh, just in terms of me starting to uh, question the, uh, the medical establishment and they're sort of turning a blind eye to nutrition. Like to me, it, it seemed important and to them it obviously wasn't. So, so that happened. And then the day I was supposed to check out from the hospital, the surgeon came in to check on me and do his final, you know, final rounds with me before I went home. And I asked him, I said, Hey, is, are there any foods I need to avoid? Cause again, I mean, they had just cut out my guts, right? So everything you eat is going to pass through there and I didn't want to eat the wrong thing and mess it up, you know, like hot sauce or something. So I asked him and he said, no, just don't lift anything heavier than a beer. So, you know, more strange, uh, sort of like another strange red flag uh, and, and another clue that the medical profession had no interest in nutrition, no interest in health or healthy living. And, uh, and, and it still kind of left me like wondering, like, what, what, why is there such a disconnect between health and nutrition and medicine, right? Uh, of course, I didn't have any of the answers back then. And I went home and my wife and I prayed together and I, I didn't have a good feeling about chemotherapy. I had a, a very strong internal resistance to it. And my gut was telling me, uh, you know, don't do this. Like, this is, this is a mistake. I, I was actually more afraid of, of doing chemotherapy than not doing it, right? Because I, I was very, very skinny. I was underweight. I was just, a, you know, in really bad physical shape. And I thought, this, this thing, this treatment could kill me. I mean, I'm so weak. I'm in such bad shape. And so my wife and I prayed, and I was just like, God, if there's another way, just show me because I don't know what to do, and this does not feel right. And I got a book that was sent to me two days later from a man in Alaska who knew my dad. He sends me this book and um, there, it was written by a man who had healed his own colon cancer with a radical change of diet and life and his lifestyle. I mean, he changed his whole life and adopted a hardcore anti-cancer diet, which I'll talk about in a, in a bit. And uh, within a year, his tumor was gone, didn't even have surgery. And so I just this one man's story gave me enough inspiration and hope and en- encouragement that I could heal that I just immediately adopted this hardcore anti-cancer diet and made a decision to change my life and do everything in my power to get well because up until that point I was completely powerless the medical industry and the medical professionals that I had talked to and dealt with had all led me to believe that nothing I did contributed to my disease. And this is what many cancer patients are told. It's nothing you did. It's just bad luck. You know, unfortunately, it's probably genetic or hereditary. And therefore, there's nothing you can do to help yourself except for show up for treatment, right? So showing up for treatment, uh, you give the doctor all the the power and authority uh, and put all of your faith, hope, and trust in him or her to save your life. And then you go home and hope that whatever they're doing to you is working. And this completely changed my perspective because I'm a, I'm a person who does take responsibility for my decisions. And, um, and I looked at my life and I thought, wow, my life's a mess. You know, I'm my, my physical body's unhealthy, my thoughts, my emotions, are unhealthy. I'm, I'm just unhealthy. And it's no surprise I have cancer. 
And once I had that epiphany, I realized, wow, I have a lot of room for improvement. And what would happen if I changed my whole life? And the prospect of changing my whole, whole life got me really excited. And so I, uh, I just went for it. I mean, head first, you know, I'm sort of shoot first, ask questions later to borrow a cliche, but that's, that's the way I've always been in life. And so I just dove right in and, um, and changed everything. And, uh, I've, I built a support network around me. I found a holistic nutritionist. I found a, an integrative oncologist. Um, I had very little support in the beginning, a lot of opposition from f- friends and family members who thought I was, they loved me, but they thought I was making a huge mistake. And, um, but I'm stubborn and uh, hard headed and I'm an only child. And so I, uh, <laughs> it's just like, well, I'm doing this anyway. I, I understand you disagree, but it's my life and, uh, I'm taking full responsibility to, uh, to get well. And I did, I got well. So all that happened, uh, I was diagnosed in December, 2003. So here we are, um, I'll be, you know, 13, over 13 years later, cancer free. I'm in the best shape of my life. The, the long story short is my body healed because I gave it everything that it needed to repair and regenerate and detoxify. And, and the foundation of my healing journey was nutrition, but I did a lot more, which of course we can talk about. Um, so yeah. Okay. So I love, I love that you, that was a good short, short version. I've heard your story many times. It's always inspiring. Um, Chris at crispy cancer, Chris interviews people and their cancer stories all the time. And I've been a guest on his video podcast. In fact, I tripped on it, Chris on YouTube recently, and there's just tens and tens of thousands of views. And, um, that was a really fun one. One of my favorite podcast episodes I've ever done as a guest. And, And Chris has been on my, my podcast as well. Episode 21, like I said, but, um, we're sharing today with, um, we've had 2000 detoxers join us for our spring detox and you've, uh, you've sent your followers to detox with us and we're deeply grateful for that. I know that, you know, probably they'll be really overrepresented because they know you well and they trust you. A couple quick questions. These are like small ones, but I love that you took responsibility for, you know, the medical profession wants to say this just happened by magic. You're completely unlucky. You didn't do anything, but you decided immediately to take responsibility for your past choices that may have led to higher risk for colon cancer. I don't think that's shocking, but some people do. And some people get really angry if anybody says you may have done anything that contributed to this. It's not a blame game. It's a, it's an accountability thing. What role did that play in you getting well? And what role would that play in you, in you staying well or not getting sick in the first place? And what role did taking responsibility play? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I love that question because one of the things I tell cancer patients, I talk about it all the time is, um, one of the first things I tell them is, look, if you have cancer, then you need to assume that the way you're living is killing you, right? Not to, not to make you feel bad about yourself or guilt trip you or, you know, douse you in a bucket of shame. But, but when you take a step back and and just say, okay, maybe this is my fault. Maybe I have contributed to my disease. Guess what you're doing? You're taking responsibility. And, and you know what? Maybe it's your fault. Okay. That's okay. If it's your fault, it's okay. If it isn't your fault, it's also okay, but either way, you can still take responsibility to fix it, right? You can take ownership of your problem instead of just saying, oh, I don't know what to do. I hope the doctor can help me. You can say, no, I'm going to do everything I can do to, uh, to help myself, right? Even if you're working with the doctor, do everything you can do to help yourself. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I did. That was the attitude I adopted. And I think it's the attitude every cancer patient should adopt. And unfortunately, many of them don't, maybe because they just don't hear this kind of a message from anyone saying like, hey, there's so much you can do. And it's not just like, these aren't just esoteric ideas that, you know, weird uh, fringe natural health people think. All of these are rooted in nutritional science, evidence-based research, epidemiological studies from populations around the world with the lowest rates of cancer, which we can touch on later if it, if it comes up. But so we have so much amazing science that shows what causes cancer and the, the leading cancers in the United States and Europe and Western nations 
are caused by diet, lifestyle, environment, and stress. So they're not bad luck. Less than 5% are actually genetic. They're mostly caused by the choices we make every day. But we're not, we don't realize that we're making unhealthy choices. So that's where, you know, that's what really where my mission and my passion is, and I know yours is too, is to just educate people and, and help open their eyes to see that the choices they make every day can impact their health in a very powerful way and prevent, help them prevent cancer, to prevent ever developing cancer, prevent a recurrence, and even empower their bodies to heal existing cancers. Because we know the body created this and the body can heal it. But you have to, it takes full commitment and you have to um, give it the proper nutrients and care. Detoxification is part of the process. You know, you mentioned what you were fed in the hospital. And I love that you pull these amazing details into your story that help us all relate to it. Um, having had four babies in a hospital and um, a couple surgeries, I had a pregnancy that went wildly wrong and blew up inside me and almost died. Been in the hospital half a dozen times. The food that they feed you in the hospital is among the worst food everywhere ever. It's like in, in my life, it's as bad as fast food through the drive-thru. And similarly, let's talk, I just want you to answer a question about nutritionists and dietitians. Obviously, there's some very good ones, just like there are oncologists who step outside of the exclusively cut, burn, poison methods and learn integrative techniques. And they learn about detoxification and they learn about rehabilitating the immune system. Um, and why why we get cancer in the first place? There are there are dietitians and and, and let's see dietitians and nutritionists who self educate outside of the mainstream uh, education. And I think I'm sort of begging the answer here, which is lame. Um, so tell me your answer. Why are our hospitals and our schools feeding us among the worst of the processed standard American diet? Yeah, um, because. Uh, nutrition is not nutri nutritional science and nutrition education is not a part of medical education. So we have a uh, decade, many, many, many decades of uh, practicing physicians that have been educated by the medical system, which is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And we have an ingrained belief in the medical community that nutrition doesn't really matter and that people are just going to get sick. And um, we just need to do the best we can with medications and surgical procedures to help them. And that's their, you know, that's the only way to really help people. And they're also not educated on prevention because there's no money in prevention, right? Uh, there's only money in treatment. So, you know, there, uh, we, I will say this though, uh, we are seeing a, a shift and many hospitals now have uh you know, shifted their cafeterias to or all organic and t lots of fruits and vegetables and even plant-based dietitians on staff and things like that. So things are changing for the better, um, but there are still there's still a long way to go, right? And you mentioned dietitians, and it's true. You know, the American Academy of Dietetics is uh, basically a bought, and it's it's <laughs> you know that's who certifies nutritionists, right? And uh, this, this organization is owned by the large food producers. So if you went to the annual uh, American Academy of Dietetics, the annual conference for nutritionists, uh, those conferences are sponsored by McDonald's, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Kraft, Nabisco, right? All the major producers of junk food and unhealthy food and even like large scale uh, agricultural industry um, organizations sponsor the new quote unquote, you know, certified nutritionists. And so they're dispensing out advice uh, that is basically, you know, spoon fed to them by the big ag and the big food industry. So, well, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but, um, you know, the tobacco company's gotten huge hot water when it was finally proven in court that cigarettes cause cancer and they knew it and they covered it up for decades, right? And they finally got busted. And that's, this was, you know, several decades ago when it all hit the fan. Um, but what the tobacco companies started doing is when they, they realized, uh-oh, you know, smoking is becoming 
people, you know, we have to put these warning labels on cigarettes. This is going to impact our sales. And it has. Smoking is at the lowest levels it's been in, in many decades now, which is great. And as a result, lung cancer rates are way down, which is all that's good. But what the tobacco companies did is they started buying up all the junk food companies. So the major tobacco companies are Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds, and they started buying up Nabisco and Kraft and all of these junk food and fa you know fast food type uh, processed food producers. And so their 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 biggest money makers are not cigarettes anymore; it's junk food. Yeah, very similarly, the drug companies, Big Pharma, has been buying up the supplement companies. And so, mm. gosh, if right. you if you have you know, if you take one thing from that, it is control your own food, grow your own food, make your own food, make it from ingredients you understand and can put together simply. So, you know, you and I've talked about this a little bit right now, the reigning kings in the diet wars are paleo and keto. And they're all the talk out there and really smart people I know are doing these diets. What do these have to do with disease prevention? Is weight loss dieting the same as eating right for disease prevention? Talk about those two di diets and whether they have anything to do with decreasing your cancer risk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, there's lots of hot debate, obviously, uh, about the healthiest diet. And so before I get into it, uh, let, me, let me address something. So the number one cause of cancer is still tobacco, okay? So smoking and chewing tobacco, that is the leading cause of cancer. The number two cause of cancer is obesity. Most, most people have not heard this, even, you know, except people that follow me. But obesity is the second leading cause of cancer. This is not Chris's weird idea. This is from the, uh, the National Institutes of Health, the American Institute for Cancer Research, the World Health Organization, you know, all of the major government research organizations are in agreement. Obesity is a second leading cause of cancer. So any method to lose weight and uh, is actually kind of a good thing, right? Any way that you can get the weight off um, is good. So, I mean, you know, even like doing crystal meth, if you can do that, get the weight off, <laughs> or it's better it's better than staying obese you mean yeah yeah it's better than staying obese that was a joke but the point is uh so any diet that helps you get back to your normal weight into a normal bmi range you know between about 18 and 25 uh is in the short term a good thing whether it's weight watchers or paleo or keto or something right but what we know is that most diets are crash diets and people will, will get really fired up and they'll stick with it for a short period of time and they'll get results, but then they go back to their old habits, right? And they gain the weight back. So there's really no benefit to it uh, in the long term. And so in order to get the long-term benefit, you have to get down to a healthy weight and stay there, right? For the rest of your life, like stay in a healthy weight range. Okay, so having said that, um, yeah, the, the paleo diet is a, an American fad. It is not rooted in science. It's rooted in hype, and it's rooted in sort of a, 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 a mythology that our caveman ancestors ate uh, a diet that was mostly meat and maybe some root vegetables and leafy greens and nuts and seeds, and that they didn't eat any carbohydrates. And if you adopt a paleo diet, uh, and I will say the principles that, you know, eating clean, grass-fed, organically raised, pasture-raised uh, type meat and wild-caught, wild-killed meat, those principles, sure, that that is a better quality of animal product than your commercially raised uh, beef and chicken and pork and stuff like that, right? So <clears throat> they also, many paleo advocates they advocate for eating whole foods and not processed food. That's great advice. I totally agree. Um, but they're very down on fruit and they're very down on um, on starchy vegetables because they they you know there's just this idea that's been propagated and regurgitated that our ant Paleolithic can't, caveman ancestors didn't eat that stuff. Well, the reality is, uh, if you actually look at the science, uh, there's a fantastic spread in Scientific American. Um, where they investigate, like, what is the real paleolithic diet? And what they've found is that the actual leading paleontologists, who are, by the way, not the authors of any paleo diet books, okay, 
those guys are, are not actual scientists or research. I mean, they may do a little research, but they're not actual paleontologists. So the leading paleontologists around the world, when they investigate the, uh, the, the remains, the bodies that have been pulled out of the earth from uh, prehistoric man and paleolithic peoples, guess what they find in their teeth? They find starch, starchy plant matter in their teeth and digestive tracts. So we know they ate lots of starchy vegetables. And they ate very little animal products. And what we, we have now is we have this movement, and the paleo diet is really, you could, you could actually just call it the meat lover's diet. That's what it is. So it's branded as this healthy, cutting-edge thing, and, uh, but it's really just a diet for people that love to eat meat and, and want to justify it as it's the, the latest, greatest, healthy way to be like our ancestors. Uh, there's, there's one guy, I won't name any names, but um, <sighs> he has this painful, painful slogan. And I read an article he wrote about the, all the virtues of the paleo diet. One of his you know, top reasons was, quote, it worked for your ancestors and it'll work for you too. Like, that that what? is truly awful because you know, l- like you said, not only were there starchy vegetables in the dental structures of ancient man, but there's this there's study out of University of Utah that shows that 3.4 million years ago, early hominids had cereal grains in their teeth. And if you if you look at what the the paleontologists show us, the actual people who are studying 3.4 you know million years of human history since we were upright. And they are different people than the ones who are out marketing the latest fad diet, which is really just an iteration and slight tweak on the Atkins diet, which was the maybe the worst diet in in history. You learn that there are zero of the pods of Paleolithic men for th- you know many thousands of years who ate meat three times a day, like people eating the Paleo diet, right? That's right. Yeah, they weren't eating bacon and butter, and they definitely weren't drinking coffee. Uh, and it seems like every paleo person I know eats tons of bacon butter and drinks a lot of coffee. And the reason they drink a lot of coffee is because their protein heavy diet is such an energy depleting diet that they need coffee just to have a normal energy level throughout the day, which is crazy. And, uh, because, you know, it takes a lot more phys- energy for, to digest animal protein. It's, it's highly thermogenic, which is why it actually burns calories while you lose weight eating a high protein diet because it, your body actually has to use more energy to break this stuff down, to convert it into energy. You know, there's, a, there's an energy cycle in digestion, right? So you eat food for energy, but then it takes, it takes energy to break it down, to convert it to, into a form. In other words, uh, protein is converted into glucose in your liver. And um, so anyway, the point is, uh, but yeah, it, you know, it makes you feel sluggish and tired all the time when you eat tons of protein. So even if we didn't have... Uh, you know, research on, uh, you know, like you said, and like I talked about, um, Paleolithic man, and we know what what kind of foods they were eating, which was plant foods, pr- predominantly, and then hunting and killing when they when they could. Uh, they weren't. Uh, even if we didn't have that science, what we do have is we have many, many, many studies from around the world on the healthiest, longest living people on Earth. And we know, and these are people living today and people that have, you know, been alive in the last hundred years that have, you know, researchers and scientists have been able to actually go and live with and study and, and track their disease rates and take their blood, right? And uh, we know that the healthiest, longest living people with the lowest rates of disease eat a diet that's 95% plant-based on average. And they eat tons of starchy vegetables. In fact, that is their main source of calories comes from starches like rice, beans, corn, potatoes, grains, of course, fruit. And they eat very little meat and dairy. Uh, Like I said, less than 5% of their diet. So that can equate to eating meat a few times a week to a few times a month. In some cases, a few times a year, depending on their poverty level. So the healthiest, longest living people with the lowest rates of Western diseases like cancer, heart disease, and diabetes actually are the poorest people in India, Africa, China, South America, Southeast Asia, in all of these undeveloped countries. So 
there is so much we have learned and can learn from these people groups, but unfortunately, the uh, message that um, eating a Western diet that's rich in meat, dairy, oils, processed food, fast food, and junk food is bad for you and will give you cancer and heart disease is not a popular message. It's even to the paleo community who, who are avoiding uh, processed food and junk food, the message that eating a meat-centric diet high in fat and animal protein uh, is going to promote cancer and heart disease and diabetes. They don't like that message at all. So they're fighting it constantly. They're constantly trying to fight it. But, you know, you, you just really can't fight the truth. Eventually it will prevail. And their entire movement is built on a fallacy. And it's built on um, this, again, it's mythology that our caveman ancestors were super healthy and lived uh, long, healthy lives that free of heart disease and cancer. So, um, of course, cancer rates were much lower. And the thing is about animal protein is we can't say for sure that animal protein causes cancer, but we know that it fuels cancer growth. Uh, and there's several factors in, in animal foods that fuel cancer growth. Number one is animal protein raises, raises IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor. That's a hormonal response in the body that is like cancer rocket fuel. Uh, animal protein raises methionine, which is an amino acid that cancer cells are dependent on to survive. And then animal foods are, are high in animal fat. And animal fat is high in palmitic acid. And palmitic acid also fuels cancer growth. And, and palmitic acid is also in palm oil. So processed, refined, commercially produced oils and animal fat fuel cancer growth as well. So it's animal protein and animal fat. So again, this is not, by the way, this is for anybody listening, this is not a message of uh, be vegan, but um, if you have cancer, avoiding animal foods is, is absolutely critical because they feed cancer. In fact, I just interviewed a man, brilliant man, Dr. John Kelly, retired general practitioner from Dublin, Ireland, who wrote a book called Stop Feeding Your Cancer. And what he found was that every cancer patient in the last roughly 10 years that came through his office, he, he told them to get off all animal foods. And the ones that he that that followed his advice had remarkable survival. I mean, most of them are still alive, and the ones that didn't follow his, his advice, a lot of them have died. It's and it's just a matter of their diet. He didn't do any advanced therapies, and a lot of these patients were doing conventional treatments as well. So they had much better survival rates than the other conventional treatment patients who were eating this this typical you know diet of the UK, which is the diet of the United States, right? It's tons of meat and dairy and processed food and junk food. Now, I'll just say, you mentioned the keto diet. So the ketogenic diet is in a whole class by its own. It's just an experimental diet that uh, is a high fat diet. So it's very high fat, a moderate amount of protein and a very, very extremely low carbs. Of course, this diet will also cause you to lose weight uh, when you eat a high fat diet. And um, there's no population anywhere in the world that it lives in ketosis. Ketosis is a survival mechanism triggered in the body when you go without food. So whether you uh, are, let's just say you lived hundreds of years ago and you went in, you know, you grew your own food and raised livestock. Well, in the winter, you know, maybe you were a hunter, all the animals are hibernating, you can't grow any food. And so uh, there are extended periods of time where you don't have anything, any food to eat. And so you might go for a day or two or three days or even a week or maybe even a few weeks where you had very little food. And ketosis is a process where your body burns fat for energy. So it burns stored fat, converts it to uh, ketones, which your body can use as fuel instead of glucose, and it burns those and keeps you alive. And uh, it's a wonderful, brilliant, intelligent, des intelligently designed backup survival uh, you know, mode that your body kicks into when you're trying to survive. And fasting is very beneficial. I'm a huge advocate of fasting. Um, you know, three to five days on water is, is a very powerful fast. And, um, but the point is, uh, there, you know, there's a segment of the community and in scientific community and di fad diet community that has taken this idea of ketosis, which Atkins really popularized. And, really taking it farther than he ever did. And they're, you know, encouraging people to just stay in ketosis, to eat this high fat diet just for, you know, the rest of their life essentially. And, uh, 
that it's healthy, that it's good for them. But there's no precedent anywhere in the world. There's no population, no people group, not even the Eskimos who did eat a lot of fat were in ketosis. So it's a highly experimental diet. Um, it's, it's gotten a lot of people have made claims that it's, uh, the best diet for cancer patients. And, uh, there's virtually no evidence of that either. It's all sort of theoretical, hypothetical speculation um, that because cancer cells feed on glucose, that if you convert to a diet that has no glucose in it and you're eating all fat, that the, the, the ketone bodies, um, cancer cells have a hard time metabolizing fat and you will, um, you know, you'll survive, you'll get better. But we actually know there's studies that um, tumors feed on fat. So like I mentioned palmitic acid. So uh, tumor cells have fat receptors and they use those fat receptors to feed on fat and to metastasize. So uh, again, I could talk about this at length, but you can tell I'm not a fan of the paleo diet or the ketogenic diet. I, I look around the world at the healthy populations with low rates of cancer and heart disease and diabetes, and that's the diet we wanna imitate. Like, let's just go ahead, instead of like experimenting with something that's never been proven, and uh, why don't we just imitate what's working for people? You know, you and I very first um, connected over um, my grandmother's story and what she did to beat cancer really unconventionally like you with none, nobody in her support group really or her family too stoked about it. You had like one or two people like your mom was pretty, you know, supportive, neutral, mm -hmm. not against what you did. And my, my grandmother had my mother who was pretty positive about her choice to not do chemo and radiation and instead do an all raw plant-based diet and tons of juicing, especially green juicing. You've done such a great job, Chris, of um, covering what's wrong with the paleo diet, what's wrong with the ketogenic diet. And we should probably make a quick note that, um, tell me if I'm right, I believe that both Chris and I, as you know, wellness influencers with large followings on the internet, want to say, okay, tell me if I'm wrong here. We like that they get you off of processed food, right? There's some good things there. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely good advice. It's always good advice to tell people not to eat processed food and junk food. Yeah, and and that, and that's <laughs> yeah. where that's where you know our agreement on the obsession yeah. with protein and, and, and fat. And it's it's good advice to tell people to eat organic, you know, produce, right? For organic fruits and vegetables. A lot of the paleo people say that. And uh, and wild caught so, and organic and grass fed. If you're gonna eat if you're gonna eat animal proteins, that's much much better, right? So absolutely, that's the the cleanest, um, quote unquote, healthiest. Uh, form of animal food would be wild caught, organically raised, grass fed, wild killed, uh, even kosher takes it a step up. Um, organic and kosher would be sort of like the pinnacle of healthy, clean meat because you want to really you want to get the blood out. Uh, blood can carries carries a lot of uh, viruses, bacteria, parasites, and pathogens, and and a lot of heme iron. Well, guess what? Heme iron. That's the one thing I left out earlier. Heme iron which is the free-form iron that's in uh, blood and muscle meat, fuels cancer growth as well. So you really want to drain and soak the blood, get the blood out of meat if you eat it. Oh, I feel slightly nauseous as a plant-based eater who hasn't eaten any of that kind of animal in many, many years, but thank you for that. So I, this is where it's going to get really exciting and actionable. We've talked about you know Chris's opinion based on you know many years of research, um, similar to my own research and life experience. Um, with cancer and disease and beating disease, uh, you should know that Chris has been well over 13 years cancer-free, which puts him at a level of risk for cancer that's the same as yours and mine if we haven't been diagnosed with cancer, which is pretty exciting, right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And so, and it helps that he, he didn't go through chemotherapy, so he didn't dump lots of heavy metals and toxins into his you know, bloodstream and organs. And I don't say that to make uh, former chemo patients uh, panic, I say that to let you know, because you're in our detox, you've got a, you've got bigger challenges and you have more reasons than anybody to be committed to detoxing. And you know that I don't want you to do the detox once. I talk a lot about biannual detoxing as a fundamental, very important thing that you do if you're going to live in this toxic world, which there's no, there's no way out of it, right? We all live in it. And so, so it's super, super important if you've been through chemo and radiation to heal those cells and and, and help the body optimize eliminating. Um, but I want you to hear, I want to get really um, actionable next. I want to break the rest of our 
interview time with Chris, who is a super busy guy. I want to break it into what he did, what he did with his nutrition, his diet. And then I want to talk about some things he did that aren't related to his diet at all, that have everything to do. And he, and, and I think it's pretty scientific at this point. It's not just woo-woo stuff, you know, I need to stop being so mad all the time. What, what I want him to drive as many stakes into that idea as well, his emotional healing that he did. But so rest of our time, let's talk about what did he eat? I love hearing Chris talk about what exactly he ate because, you know, he and I have both been on the internet for many years and have fielded thousands of questions. And this is what people ask us all the time because, you know, our similarity in our stories is we used to be really, really sick. Now we're really, really healthy. Um, they say, what did you eat? So Chris, you went from college student diet to rock, you know, musician diet, both of which are, you know, sort of equally crappy overnight. What did you eat? How did you do it? How did you make that tr- transition so quickly to completely eliminate the cancer growth in your body? Yeah, I'm glad you said college student diet because that's that is exactly right. I mean, I the the way I ate in high school and college was the way I ate as a young adult when I was diagnosed. It was tons of fast food. I mean, literally, it was you know breakfast before cancer was maybe cereal or. Uh, some waffles or some, you know, microwave sausage biscuits, uh, maybe, you know, a half a grapefruit, right, uh, with it. And then, of course, eggs and bacon and sausage and stuff. So your very typical American breakfast. Lunch was always some fast food, you know, grab it and go in a hurry. Burger King, Wendy's, Taco Bell, Subway, KFC, you know, yeah, barbecue joint. And then dinner was maybe more fast food or a microwave meal, you know, like some kind of microwave lasagna or my wife might, you know, a few nights a week, she might've, you know, cooked something really basic, like some chicken and some green beans or, uh, um, or potatoes, or maybe some little, some cheap little fillets or whatever. Right. So, uh, with a, with some kind of vegetable side. So, I mean, we both, neither one of us were eating healthy at all. And, um, so I immediately converted. I read a book called God's Way to Ultimate Health, and and this book was making the case for the raw food diet and uh, organic, so a raw organic diet. And I I loved it. I love the idea um, that I believe that God created the earth. I'm a Christian, so I, I, it's very easy for me to accept that if God created the earth for us then everything that comes from the earth is also for us, right? And the food that grows on trees and grows out of the ground for us, we know what's poisonous now and what isn't, right? So these foods that come out of the earth were created for us. And so if we get back to a diet that is just fruits and vegetables, it's just pure natural diet of food from the earth that was made for us, that it will have um, a, a just an incredible benefit to the body. So Overnight, you know, I, I read this book and he was talking about these kind of concepts and I was like, I believe it. Like this makes so much sense to me. It makes so much more sense than putting man-made toxic chemical poison in my body in order to, to try to get well, right? And again, there may be listeners that have had chemo and I don't, I don't want you to feel bad or, or freak you out or, you know, whatever. The decisions that you made at the time to do what you did, you, you made a decision with the best available information, right? And that information came from your doctor, which ultimately came from the pharmaceutical industry because that's how they make money is selling drugs to people. So point is, um, you know, no shame. It's okay. We just got to move forward. If you've gone through it, uh, detoxing is very important and I'm about to get into that. So, uh, so I converted this diet. I started juicing, bought a juicer, started making a fresh vegetable juice every morning, about 64 ounces that would last me throughout the day. I was about eight, eight ounce servings. And in the beginning, it was mostly carrot juice. And then I started adding other things that I would kind of read and learn about beets and celery and cucumber and uh, ginger root. So other very powerful, potent uh, fruits and vegetables to my juices to just even amp them up even, you know, even further. And I would put a scoop of a, of a greens powder uh, in the juice as well. And a lot of greens powders have, I believe you, you have your own greens product too, right? It says barley grass, wheat grass, chlorella, spirulina, things, things like that in there. And so I would juice, I would juice throughout the day and then I would eat giant salads for lunch and dinner. It was a very simple um, plan that I created for myself because I knew uh, two things. One is I had to make it simple and sustainable or else I wouldn't be able to keep it up. Uh, and two, I really try, I tried to do raw food recipes and I found that they were all lacking. 
right? Most raw food recipes, uh, you know, would have a handful of ingredients, but my giant salad had like 20 ingredients. So I was putting broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, onions, mushrooms, sprouted beans and lentils. Um, and then uh, I was putting uh, like um, spices like turmeric, curry powder, uh, cayenne pepper, oregano. Uh, I was putting sauerkraut on there, which is the cabbage, um, which is delicious. Apple cider vinegar, some olive oil for dressing and, and just making this huge and delicious and insanely nutritious anti-cancer meal and eating it twice a day. So I learned later that the most potent anti-cancer vegetables were the ones that I was eating, all the cruciferous vegetables and, uh, and then the allium family, family, which would be like garlic and onions. So I, I just kept it really simple and I just did it day in, day out, every single day. And when you, when you make a radical diet change or you know, you're going through Robin's detox program, a lot of these are the exact same principles. Um, you dev- there's a momentum that happens in your body when you keep putting good stuff in day in, day out, right? Eat one healthy meal, there's not much benefit to it. But when you eliminate the junk food, processed food, fast food, all that stuff, and meat and dairy, and you just keep putting in fruits and vegetables, your body starts to go, wow, man, there's all, this, all these extra vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and enzymes and phytonutrients that never, we've never had access to before let's put them to use and that's when healing happens so there's you start to develop like a healing momentum uh in your body so it's really exciting and and cool and fascinating and and also scientific so um that's what i did and the cool thing about that is um the the biggest principle to detoxification is to stop toxifying your body like that's like step one. Like you have to stop putting toxic crap in your mouth. And most of that toxic crap in your mouth, besides cigarettes, obviously, uh, comes in the form of processed food and junk food. And a lot of meat and dairy products are tainted, contaminated. So when you eliminate those things, you're automatically reducing your toxic load. You know, And then you're replacing it with foods that are rich in water and rich in fiber and uh, rich in antioxidants. So Foods, fruits and vegetables that are rich in antioxidants, water, and fiber are detoxificating foods. And they assist your body and your liver, especially in excretion. And they assist in um, high fiber foods, absorb liver toxins that your liver excretes into your colon. And that those high fiber foods, fruits and vegetables, absorb those toxins and carry them out the back door uh, before they can get reabsorbed and recirculate in your body and your blood. And so many people are toxic because they eat a diet that is high in meat and dairy and processed food and they're constipated and their digestion is very slow. And so this, all this stuff that they eat is putrefying in their colon and, and releasing these toxins. Uh, some of them are called fecal mutagens, which is one of the most disgusting terms I think in all of science. Uh, and fecal mutagens are literally, uh, cancer-causing compounds created by your feces when it putrefies. So it irritates and inflames your colon, causes damage to your your cells in your colon, right? DNA damage, mitochondrial damage, and then you reabsorb those toxins through the wall of your colon back into your bloodstream. And they're recirculating constantly and people just feel like crap all the time because they're reabsorbing some of their crap. So, this is the, the great news is that when you stop eating all that horrible food uh, and you start replacing it with fruits and vegetables, then you stop tox- toxifying and you speed up the detoxification process. And then there are additional things you can do like coffee enemas or water enemas to uh, improve and increase your liver's ability to excrete toxins as they're processed, metabolized and processed in your body. And then you know, the body stores a lot of toxins in fat. So as you lose weight, there will be toxins that will, will be broken down and released in your bloodstream and will circulate around. And they can make you feel kind of bad uh, while they're circulating and while your body is, is metabolizing them and trying to uh, eliminate them. But the good news is it is eliminating them. Uh, and so weight loss is, is also a detoxifying practice too. Uh, so anyway, 
that I was doing all that stuff. Now the weight loss, I didn't, I was never overweight. I didn't have any body fat to lose. That was the one piece of, of my story that doesn't apply to some people. But, um, I, you know, I adopted every therapy I could find and afford. Another big one that's so important is exercise because when you sweat, you excrete toxins. And, you know, there are certain toxic heavy metals, um, that are eliminated more in sweat than in your pee or your poop. So it's an extra sweaty exercise, whatever form you like, whether it's Zumba, jazzercise, you know, Tybo, running, wrestling, whatever you like to do uh, to just like get your heart pumping, get your blood pumping, get, get sweaty is wonderful. Okay. Saunas are great too, but there's a benefit to uh, sweaty exercise that you don't get from a sauna, which is exercise um, increases blood circulation. And then it switches on a lot of cancer uh, protective genes and switches off a lot of cancer uh, promoting genes. So um, saunas are, are wonderful and b- beneficial and therapeutic, but um, I'm a big fan of sweaty exercise. So uh, when in doubt, do both. And if you don't have a sauna, don't fret. You know, Not everyone can afford one or has access to one. Um, you, just, you just focus on getting 30 minutes up to 60 minutes of sweaty exercise every day. Yeah, just break a sweat, break a sweat yep. most of the days of the week. So um, yep. I know you did more than than just change your diet. And mm-hmm. that was so, I love to hear you talk about what you ate because it's so simple. And it's a lot simpler, very frankly, than most people do when they're going on a cancer preventative diet and they're making themselves all kinds of gourmet meals. And I, I spent, you know, my first couple of years struggling with a, you know, like a raw pizza recipe that took me 36 hours of <laughs> yeah. smoking oh, no. and dehydrating. No. And, and it could be daunting, right? I got, yeah, I bought a book rare in the, right in the beginning. It's a very famous book. It's called the raw gourmet. Yep. And yeah, I was, I was going through it, looking at recipes to make beautiful pictures. Everything looks amazing, but I'm looking at, you know, the prep time and you got to buy a dehydrator and make this pizza crust out of dehydrated, you know, vegetables. And, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, man, this is like so much work uh, to do this. And I could be fun to do this, but like, I've got to, I've got to pare it down to the absolute, like minimal and maximum effective, but minimal time, energy and effort. Right. And that's, you know, giant salads. So like someone can Google the giant cancer fighting salad if they haven't found it and they'll, they'll find my post about it and how to make it. You know, it's pretty easy. Uh, throw, you chop up some vegetables, throw them in a bowl, add a bunch of spices. And, uh, since I wasn't doing chemo, I had a lot of people that again, thought I was making a huge mistake. And so I had to live, I had to survive. Like I, I couldn't bear the thought of my wife putting me in the ground. I couldn't bear the thought of my mom and dad putting me in the ground. I'm an only child. And, you know, so I was like, I've just got to live. There's just, there's no other option. Right. And, and you, um, you couldn't even imagine at the time that you would have, had you chosen not to go this route, you perhaps wouldn't have gotten to meet your two beautiful daughters. Uh, that's right. You know, and my wife, the good opportunity to just tell a little story about my wife, which is that she, you know, when I, about three months after I was diagnosed, we had a conversation and, you know, cancer just sort of has this way of illuminating what's important. You know, it it illuminates everything in your life that is important and not important. And there's a clear sort of dividing line that happens in your mind. And you just sort of realize like what's important. And most of what's happening in, in stuff in your life isn't important at all. And what's important is your, you know, your, a, your health, your life relationships and not much else. And, um, but to me, I wanted to, I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to have a family. Like, you know, I was 26 years old and I was planned on being a dad and having a family. And, and all of a sudden this was threatening, you know, my life and my life plan. And so, you know, my wife and I talked about it and I said, I, you know, I really would love to start a family. And she made what I believe is, you know, one of the most courageous decisions of anyone I know. And that was to, um, she said, yes, like we can, let's, let's try to have a baby, not knowing if I was even going to be alive to help her raise it. And so, you know, we, you know, started trying to have a baby. Everyone knows what that entails. And 
she got pregnant right away, right away. So between three and four months after I was diagnosed, my wife was pregnant. And so now I had this little baby on the way and that was something else to live for. And, uh, and she just made this beautiful, you know, sacrificial and courageous decision uh, that she just loved me so much that she was willing to have a baby with me. And so our firstborn daughter was born uh, 13 months after I was diagnosed. So it was a pretty intense, it was still in a, very much an intense time, but you know, that little baby girl brought so much joy into our lives. Um, and again, just gave me even more determination to live and to take care of myself. Right. And, and just to be determined to get well. So, and then we had another baby girl about three years after that. So uh, I've got two girls that are now 12 and eight. And so, so an amazing part of your, of your story. And, uh, it was brave of you both. Um, three actionable things that someone who would like to not have cancer because we've seen our parents or our grandparents, even our siblings. I, Mm -hmm. I have a younger brother who was diagnosed with cancer, uh, just last year. Um, tell us three actionable things that have nothing to do with food that we can do to prevent cancer that have been part of your healing journey as well. Yep. And before I do that, I want to say two things. One is I need to answer your question because I got on a rabbit trail and didn't really answer it. But a big part of the process for me was also dealing with stress and dealing with bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. And uh, because what I didn't understand then and I understand deeply now is that when you're carrying around bitterness and resentment toward people that have hurt you, um, those negative emotions produce stress. And that stress is real. Physical stress creates uh, inflammation in the body and it suppresses your immune system. And so as soon as I re- learned that, I was like, wow, I know I... <laughs> hey, I need to de-stress my life as much as possible and I need to forgive everyone who's ever hurt me. And so I set, a, so, you know, I set about to just start forgiving like crazy and I, I literally would just go through and think through my life and think of try to remember any person who had ever hurt me in any way. I, I, I just was tired of holding on to bitterness and resentments and I let those things go and I forgave everyone by name. Gratitude is sort of the antidote to all unhappiness because anytime you're in the middle of some unhappy emotion, right, whatever it is, you can always catch yourself and say, you know what, I'm, I'm angry, I'm upset about this right now, but let me just focus on for one second, let me just remind myself about how many good things I have in my life. You have a thousand things to be happy about. Pick one. Um, and I still, you know, I'm still challenged, right? On a semi-regular basis, I'm still challenged with negative thinking or, or uh, you know, thoughts and attitudes and things. And I still have to follow my own advice and catch those things. So that's a big, you know, a big part of it. And the other thing I wanted to throw out there before I uh, we do some tips is that, you know, you said um, you mentioned courage and or, or being brave and you know, something that this process taught me a lot about is that courage, I think most people don't know what courage is. And um, courage is not the absence of fear. In fact, courage cannot exist without fear. And it's in the times that you're most afraid, you that's the opportunity to be courageous. And so courageous is simply going forward while you're afraid, right? It's, it's going forward in battle when you're scared, when you run, want to run away, it's going forward. And so a lot of people think because they're afraid they can't be courageous or that being courageous means being unafraid. And it's, the, it's actually not true. People say to me sometimes like, wow, you were so brave or courageous. And I'm telling you, and my response is, you know what courage feels like? Courage feels just like fear. <laughs> That's what it feels like. I like that because you really can't, you really can't even, really can't even have courage if you don't have fear. They, they coexist. There is no such thing. There's no such thing. Courage cannot exist without fear. It's, 
it's something that happens in in the fearful moment and it's just the it's and again it's, courage isn't the feeling the feeling is fear and that's what i was dealing with you know during the whole process fear was present it was a part of my life every day i would wake up and remember i had cancer right and 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 fear would come over me and i would have to press address the fear and and give it to god and just kind of press through and trust that that he was leading me that that was you know that's again a, a short version of the the mental spiritual emotional journey that i went through that was completely separate of the the diet and lifestyle changes i made i have one more question for you and that is it's really kind of a multi-part question and you can take it wherever you want but are the body and the mind and the spirit, are they separate? And also, does the body want to heal? Does it know how? Does it have the power? Does our body know how to heal? That's some deep stuff. Um, so I, I, I am of the belief that your spirit, mind, and body are obviously connected while you're in your body. Um, but when you die, your spirit lives on. Uh, so yeah, there's a huge spirit, mind, body connection and, and your body is a reflection of your spiritual health, right? Your mental, emotional, spiritual health is manifested in your body. And so many, many, many people that have sick bodies, uh, are also sick at heart, right? They're, they're, they're sick mentally and emotionally and spiritually, and that has to be healed. And, you know, they can do all the diet and, and, um, exercise and lifestyle medicine stuff they want, but if they don't address the root causes of their disease, which is bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and and just a messed up emotional and spiritual life, then that can be the one barrier to them getting well. And I see it all the time. I meet people with cancer on a regular basis that are, you know, I was eating a super healthy diet and I would even acknowledge like, yes, you were like, they were already health nuts, you know, health junkies, health nuts and all that. And then we start talking about the stress in their life and they were just overloaded with stress. Uh, now you asked me about tips. Uh, so the, the big takeaways um, for someone that, that you know, that hopefully these, these will stick with you is one, a plant-based diet is the healthiest diet on earth. And it's not because Chris thinks so or because somebody wrote a book about it. It's because we have tons and tons of scientific research from around the world on the healthiest, longest living people with the lowest rates of cancer, heart disease, and diabetes are leading killers. And those people all eat a plant-based diet. So lots of fruits and vegetables. There's no fruit or vegetable that's off limits and very little meat and dairy. Uh, number two is exercise. And so exercising every day, even if it's just walking, brisk walking 30 minutes, you're doing something great for your body, even though it's hard to imagine like, really, just walking? Walking is wonderful. So brisk exercise, walking all the way up to, you know, vigorous, sweaty exercise for an hour a day is awesome. These are things anyone can do. And then the third big component is, um, and I can throw in just a little sidebar is like, you know, be very mindful of environmental pollution, right? And environmental toxins. Like if you're working in a chemical factory, you should probably, you know, start looking for a new job right away. If you live in an industrial area, if you live in the country and you're surrounded by farmland and they're spraying pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, and dumping um, like, you know, uh, this toxic sludge, bio sludge, uh, fertilizer, uh, yeah, it can be poisoning you, polluting you and wrecking your health. So your environment's very important and, um, and you need to take a hard look at that. And then um, the, the third big one is, again, is stress. So stress is the one thing that can outweigh everything else. Anytime something bad or something happens that I don't like, I, you know, my knee-jerk reaction is to get angry, irritated, annoyed, upset, right? But I, on, a good, on my best days, I catch myself and I say, you know what? This sucks, but something good is going to come of this, right? Something good is coming. Well, it's, it's very, actually the macrocosm of that is your, your career and mine. And I love to say that sometimes the, if sometimes, if not usually, or always the bad thing becomes the good thing. And yep. your career is, is a testament to that, Chris, you're a, you're a shining light to millions of cancer sufferers out there who face big choices and 
face whether they're going to change their lifestyle or just get in the chair and hook me up to the needle, which is a legitimate choice that they get to make. And we, you and I will stand by them and, and uh, support whatever they choose. But we do want them yeah. to know there's, there's more and there's more to know in our, in our lives and our family's lives depend on it. I want everybody listening to this. We need to, um, we need to let Chris get back to his family, but I want you to know that he has an incredible resource called 20 questions for your oncologist that I think is, it's just a treatise on cancer, but you got to have it on your hard drive because someone close to you will be diagnosed with cancer in the next year. It's almost a guarantee unless you don't have any people in your life. And when they do, you need to have something to share with them. You, we always want to help, right? And, and someone's facing that and we, you've been there before, right? You don't know what to say. And this is such a great gift to give them. And um, what Chris has written is something you can print off and take to your oncologist to ask questions of, but it's so much more than that. It really educates you. It's at chrisbeatcancer.com slash Robin is an easy way to get to it. chrisbeatcancer.com slash Robin, R-O-B-Y-N. I really want you to have that whether you've ever faced cancer or not. It's such a great way to look at that moment, that moment that you are diagnosed or that little moment in time that Chris described in his own life where you are totally caught up in fear. They want you immediately in surgery or in the, or in the, you know, chemo radiation treatments. And that's not a, that's not a time and space to be making big decisions. And sometimes we need a little space. And I think that this document 20 questions for your oncologist is so important. And Chris, thank you for making your career and your life since beating cancer yourself um, be all about serving others. I am so, um, I learned so much from you, my brother. I am so grateful to have you in my life. And every time I talk to you, I learn something. So thank you so very much for being with us today. Robin, uh, it, well, Thank you for having me. It was, it's, I mean, any time, any opportunity that I get to share my story or share what I've learned or um, what I'm passionate about and what I think is, is going to be helpful to people, you know, I say yes. And so, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for you. I'm so glad we connected and we're friends. Well, you just keep on keeping on. I'm here to um, remind you of how important your work is. And to everyone doing the detox, I hope that this gives you new inspiration, new thoughts. Chris even accidentally gave you an endorsement to step up from uh, from level one to level two if you've been considering it. So many people do in the middle of the program, they decide, I'm doing it. I'm doing the, the water flush and then the coffee enemas. You got a little bit of a sense. Now you've heard yeah. it from at least two people that it's, it's worth doing. It was part of Chris's journey as well. So Chris Wark, thank you so very much. And everyone, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.